We're very thankful to God that he's blessing his work, his church around the world. Uh, this weekend, the telecast is by Mr. Rod McNair called The Great Unraveling. And um, we may not think it was so strong, but the uh, television censors in Australia uh, thought it was too strong for them, so they rejected the playing of that uh, particular telecast in Australia. So I'm sure you want to see it and uh, try to understand why they would censor it. Uh, so hopefully you'll see that program. Uh, my wife and I last night uh, saw part of the Bible study by Mr. Sheldon Munson, the Living Youth Program Bible Study, on uh, what, what and why the church. Uh, there were more than 300 who were connected to it, so probably anywhere from 400 to 500 people were watching that from uh, various locations around the world. When you think about God's church, and one of the things Mr. Munson mentioned that I thought was kind of... Uh, uh, provocative and uh, stimulating to think, what if every church in the world was God's church? Then you just have to go down the street to the neighborhood and, uh, you know, be with God's people. Well, someday it'll be like that. But all the world is deceived, and of course our job is to re-educate and to educate the world into the truth. And we're now in the process of at least giving pioneering lessons to the world on the truth and witnessing and warning. And we are on a mission, and God is blessing that mission. You all have the uh, current issue of Tomorrow's World magazine. Uh, we've set a new record of circulation of 539,000 subscribers. So uh, we're very thankful for that. And then, of course, you've all received the, uh, the new uh, co-worker letter recently. Um, the gospel of the kingdom is going out in all the world. And we have more of these Tomorrow's World presentations. Uh, we're thankful for the uh, presentations two weeks ago in Silva, uh, North Carolina, in London, England, and coincidentally in London, Ontario. So two Londons. And today there's one in Peterborough, Ontario, and tomorrow in Tucson, Arizona. So we'll be praying for those Tomorrow's World special presentations. We're looking forward to the spring festivals, the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread. They're just uh, only two weeks. Well, actually, we have two more sermons, two more Sabbaths uh, before those times. So uh, the next week you will want to hear the sermons on preparing for the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, as you heard even in the sermonette today. Dr. Meredith's sermon two weeks ago was the real Jesus Christ. And the world is just deceived by a false Jesus, or as the Apostle Paul said, another Jesus. But we are blessed to know the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. Then Mr. Rod McNair's sermon last week, we heard mention in the sermonette, the importance of the Passover, which is Thursday night, April 21st. And the following evening is the night to be much observed which is Friday evening, April 22nd, and that begins the Days of Unleavened Bread. That'll be the first day of Unleavened Bread, which actually is a double Sabbath. And so God's holy days and festivals reveal his plan of salvation. It's good news that gives us hope for the future. If you turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we have good news there as well. But how strong is your faith in the future? Recently, 
Our Charlotte brethren attended a funeral service of Rose Drum in Mount Holly, North Carolina. Addie Rose Drum uh, was a faithful member of our Charlotte congregation here. She died on March 13th at the age of 76. As Mr. Michael DeSimone said in his funeral message and conducted that, that Mr. Gaither Drum and his wife, Rose, read the Bible together every day without missing a day for more than 50 years after they were called in 1964. Such a remarkable example, and hopefully we are very steadfast and faithful in that way as well. When someone dies, we pray for one another. We want to comfort one another in times of death and mourning. But God gives us assurance by the promise of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. I think you all know the resurrection chapters. And as it states in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with these words. So God's truth is comforting. We also remember the seven Charlotte congregational members who died in 2015. I'll mention them briefly. Number one, Bob League, January 8th, 2015, died at the age of 82. Denise Brown, March 18th, 2015, age 60. Roy Miller, July 16th, 2015, age 76. Francis Demby, July 19th, 2015, age 93. Anastasia Moore, November 21st, 2015, age 81. Albert Vess, November 22nd, 2015, age 80. And Annie Durham, December 14th, 2015, age 82. We also remember others, not in the Charlotte congregation, but a lovely young lady named Morgan Montgomery, who died August 2nd, 2015, just a couple months before her 20th birthday. She'd been baptized, and her favorite scripture was Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. At the Living Youth Camp last summer, her father, Morgan Montgomery, gave it a very moving and inspiring message about her death and about her future. So what is the fate of these faithful Christians? Where are they now? Are they in heaven? Or are they waiting the resurrection someplace until Christ returns? We all know that death is an enemy. It deprives one of life. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and we find out where and what our enemy is. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But the each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So there's an order of the resurrections. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. There is a transition period, even at the beginning of the millennium. Not everyone's going to automatically cooperate. But notice verse 25, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. According to one census report, 151,600 people die around the world every day. 151,000 people die every day. Was there a purpose for them? What's going to happen to them? Where are they now? Are they suffering in the torments of hell or in the bliss of the clouds of heaven? That's 55.3 million people every year die. But what happens to them? Are they in hell or are they they in heaven? We thank God that he gives us the answers to those questions. If you turn back here to the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, here and verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So God gives us the victory, and the title for the sermon today is Our Victory Over Death. God's ministers have conducted funerals and uh, memorial services over the years. On some occasions, we've seen the agony of those who thought their deceased loved one was now being tormented in the flames of hell. And I just remember two or three of those incidences, but one uh, back in uh, Louisiana one time, and and, uh, the woman, the sister of the deceased, the deceased was a member of God's church, and the sister was just yelling out in agony. She was only a few feet from me. Oh, Charlie, Charlie! Just her brother-in-law, I mean her husband, who was the brother-in-law of the deceased, kind of accosted me before the funeral service. He says, you know, Charlie's sister believes he's burning in hell. I want you to preach that. (laughs) I said, I will preach the truth. Well, I told him. Oh, anyway, she, when she started agonizing, I would raise my voice and she would calm down for a little while. But it's sad to know the deceptions of people who think their relatives are burning or dying in hell and think that they're lost. Well, let's briefly look at some of the various beliefs of life after death. I've shared this quote with you before, but it's from Ronald A. Lindsay in his article, Hope, Despair, Dread, and religion. He is a part of the humanist uh, materialist movement. He asserts, quote, religious promises of immortality offer only a false hope, end of quote. And that's from the scientific examination of religion, the best of free inquiry, page 110. But he concludes with this admission, quote, humanist hope is grounded in reality. Uh, well, we'll comment on that. It's a limited reality. That is both its limitation and its strength. We cannot wish away the finality of death or irretrievable losses. 
nor can we provide acceptable answers. So he's admitting there's a limitation to the humanist mindset. We cannot provide acceptable answers to those who demand wish fulfillment. A little jab there. But if we have achieved the understanding that religion and belief in immortality are illusions, so he's saying, look, all you Christians out there who think that you're going to live sometime beyond death, uh, you are in an illusion. We can resist the temptation to yield to wishful thinking at times of crisis. With our gaze firmly fixed on the facts of reality, we can appreciate what life can and cannot offer, and that will be true whether we have the limitless horizons of a Faust or the more prosaic opportunities of an ordinary individual, end of quote. So Lindsay asserts that religion and belief in immortality are illusions. And you can understand why some scientists and those who are, if I say, normal people look at some of the strange deceptive beliefs in religion and reject all religion because they see one of Satan's counterfeits. And, of course, they make a mistake there in not examining the truth. But doubting Thomas was not under an illusion when he put his fist into the spear wound of Jesus. So you have witnesses, you have evidence, you have testimony after testimony. And you have the apostles who lived with the resurrected Christ for 40 days at least after his resurrection and had a meal with him as well. They were willing to give their lives not for an illusion, but for the reality of the resurrected Christ. So the secular humanists are the ones who are under illusion because they deny the spiritual dimension and they reject the greatest reality of all. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say, what is the greatest fact in the universe? He said in three words, God rules supreme. That is the greatest reality or one of the greatest realities if you want to qualify it. And then you have Islam and mainstream Christianity that believe in the immortality of the soul. I saw a TV preacher one time, and he was saying that when Jesus died, his spirit went down to preach to the uh, souls in hell. Well, where does that come from? Well, you might just turn there briefly. I shouldn't spend too much time on this. First Peter, the third chapter, and uh, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So in Tartarus, of course, the Greek word, for the condition of uh, the fallen uh, angels, the angels that sinned, as Jude brings out, who formerly were disobedient. But when was that? Was that when Christ died and his spirit went down to preach to these these, uh, spirits? No. When once the divine long-suffering waited when? In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so 
Christ was dead for those three days and three nights. When you read in Revelation, he says, I was dead and now am alive. So you have the very first words of Christ there in Revelation mentioning that he was dead. He didn't go with his spirit preaching to some so-called spirits in prison at that time. The immortal soul is a false doctrine that leads to all kinds of wrong ideas and, and uh, doctrines. I think most of you know about the uh, famous poem by Dante Alighieri, La Divina Commedia. We've covered this on the telecast. It's called The Divine Comedy. It was written between 1302 and 1321. Uh, Alighieri uh, died in 1321, and his poem consists of three parts, Inferno, Purgatorio and Paradiso, or Hell, Purgatory, and Paradise. And if you've ever seen it, or even some of the woodcuts of his description of these so-called immortal souls writhing in agony, so it's almost humorous in one sense, but it's also pathetic in another, one woodcut shows the bodies upside down with their feet sticking up and being tormented. But that's all a fallacy. What actually Alighieri was doing was writing a political commentary about some of the um, politicians of his day. But people have taken this to be almost true. In the New Testament, there are three Greek words that are translated hell. That's Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. And Hades simply means the pit or the grave. And uh, Tartarus, of course, we just read in uh, 1 Peter 13, is a condition of restraint for the fallen angels. But also Gehenna is the taken from the Valley of Ginnom, or Gehenna, which actually refers to the Lake of Fire mentioned in Revelation, the 20th chapter in Revelation 21. So there is a Lake of Fire. There is a judgment coming on the whole earth. But the world, of course, has a false premise that there's an immortal soul, and if there's a mortal soul, then you have to figure out what's going to happen to all these immortal souls when they die. Little babies have to go somewhere where they go. Limbus infantium. And then the patriarchs couldn't go to heaven before Jesus did, so they are in limbus patrium. And so you have these purgatories, you have all this invention based on a false premise. The truth is always so wonderful. What happens when someone dies? The soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, and Ezekiel 18, 20. The soul dies. The soul that sins, it shall die. It's not immortal. You might just turn to uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12. What happens, what is the truth, however, of the spirit? We all have the spirit in man, the human spirit, and when we're baptized, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit combined with the human spirit, and we become a begotten child of God. But here in Ecclesiastes 12, we find out what happens to the human spirit when we die. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So 
The human spirit, whether someone is baptized or not, returns to God who gave it. And what else? Uh, you might turn to, uh, while we're there, I'll save some time for turning to it later. You might turn back here, um, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead are fully conscious. No, the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. So the dead know nothing. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. We'll find out another comment on the spirit of those who died. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Hebrews 12, verse 23. And to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven... So you want to make sure your name is in the book of life and registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So it's not an immortal soul. The human spirit and the spirit of God combined when a person dies does not have any consciousness at all. The dead know nothing. They are asleep in Jesus, as you read in 1 Thessalonians 4. They are without consciousness. And so God is the one who takes care of those who are dead. I was uh, looking up on the Internet uh, the word Sheol. Of course, in the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament word for hell, the Hebrew word is Sheol, which simply means a pit or a grave. Well, I went online and uh, found uh, the Bible answer man who uh, introduced another individual. I can find this particular section. And uh, he was, uh, again, commenting on the numbers of times that the word Sheol and, and uh, occur in the Bible. And he said, Sheol is a place, a shadowy place. And the Bible shows that's where dead spirits go. No, uh, spirits are not alive and conscious when they go down into the pit, but he says they are fully conscious. What? Uh, here's the kind of false doctrine that is promulgated on the uh, you know, Protestant doctrine, that when these souls or go down into the pit or Sheol, they are fully conscious. No, they are not. We just read in Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know nothing. So we thank God for the truth. And a full explanation, of course, of hell uh, will be coming up on the telecast May 15th. Is there a real hell? And that offers the booklet, uh, The Only Day of Salvation. And we also had the telecast, Our Victory Over Death, uh, which aired March 6th, and offered uh, the... uh, DVD, actually it's a CD, got a copy of it, and uh, if some of you, if some of you, uh, I hope you respond to the telecast, by the way, you know, uh, 
If you don't have the particular item offered, uh, be sure to call in for it. This is the uh, CD that was offered on the program, uh, Is There Life After Death? And it has three programs, Is There Life After Death, The Three Resurrections, and Are They All Lost Forever? So, again, you may want to uh, request that CD. But that was in the uh, telecast, uh, Our Victory Over Death. Uh, Dr. Meredith gave a sermon titled, The Resurrection is Vital, and that was a must-play. So I think most of you who were here would have heard that sermon. And then, of course, our current Tomorrow's World magazine uh, has the uh, article on the subject, Victory Over Death, even on this. Um, by the way, how many of you have actually read the article in our current Tomorrow's World magazine titled Victory Over Death. Let me see your hand. Okay. It looks like about one half of one (laughs) percent. I think more than if you haven't done that. I want to encourage all of you to read uh, this current Tomorrow's World magazine. Of course, it has Dr. Meredith's uh, very inspiring uh, personal Make Each Day Count and then his main feature article, The Answer. So I hope you've been reading uh, tomorrow's World magazine on that. Let's turn to, uh, again, 1 Corinthians, the, uh, the 15th chapter. 15, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll probably be turning to that uh, every once in a while, so you may want to uh, have that marked in your Bible. <clears throat> we just saw that uh, in verse 26 in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. <clears throat> but then we find out in the, in the resurrection that we have our victory, verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is the sin, is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. When you transgress the law, you take upon yourself the death penalty. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is an enemy, and we contrast that to life. But why is death an enemy? Well, obviously, because it's the opposite of life. We treasure our life, well, particularly when we realize that one of our loved ones dies. We realize, what am I doing with my life? And Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So life is not just a sad, pathetic, unactive way of passing time. Life has to be dynamic, and it has purpose, and God has given us that purpose. So Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I won't turn there, but Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But what is our purpose in life? Again, we've had many sermons on that subject. We turn to Romans, the 12th chapter, to give one perspective on it, on how we are to live our lives. 
whether it's 70 years or 20 years or 100 years. Romans, the 12th chapter, you know this verse almost by heart, perhaps. I beseech you, brethren, Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, we need to be willing to die for God's work and for others. But he said, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or rational service, as the margin has it. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we are living sacrifices. And what do we do? We are on a mission. And we have a sevenfold mission of the church. And uh, in this uh, Tomorrow's World uh, magazine, on the major article, and this is a major feature article by Dr. Meredith, The Answer. Uh, you'll, you'll need to read that article. But I'll just read one excerpt from it. Here, are we ready for God's intervention? Dr. Meredith writes on page 2 of the May-June 2016 Tomorrow's World magazine with on the cover uh, the great unraveling, which is Rod McNair's telecast this weekend. Doing the work. We in this work, writes Dr. Meredith, have the wonderful opportunity right now to reach out to this world in growing power and proclaim the reality of the true God, the reality of Christ's second coming, and the real meaning of life which so few on earth truly understand. We in this work are driving ourselves to proclaim God's truth to this deceived and confused world. And then on page 3, he writes, The message must go out. We need to move forward ever more powerfully to proclaim this vital message as the darkness is swiftly closing in on this world. And soon, when these things occur, we can be eternally grateful and filled with joy as we see our Savior and our elder brother returning to give us the gift of eternal life. So how will we live our lives until we die? We must have our hearts in God's work. We must be overcoming, as we learned during the days of unleavened bread, that we put out the leaven of malice and wickedness and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, we are replacing with God's help, replacing human nature with God's divine nature. And you'll be hearing more about that, of course, during the days of unleavened bread. But we need to ask ourselves, what do I need to change in my life as we prepare for the Passover? You may have Actually, a bucket list. What do you want to do before you die? Dr. Meredith's mother, Mildred Meredith, had her goals in life. She wanted to go to uh, the Chateau Frontenac in Quebec City. It's kind of castle-like uh, hotel. We were there in 1983, and Mr. and Mrs. Apartian were there that same time. And uh, it was, she roomed with my mother, both widows, at that time. Grandma Meredith also wanted to go to Banff in, uh, in Canada, and that's where we're having the LYP Adventure Program this year. She wanted to see Lake Louise, north of Banff. She got to see that. She wanted to see her son, Deputy Chancellor Dr. Meredith, in Bricketwood, England, at Ambassador College. She got to do that. 
She wanted to go to Yosemite and see that. It just so happened that my wife and I were on our honeymoon to Yosemite. Uh, thankfully, Dr. Meredith took her to Yosemite in a different uh, uh, route than uh, we took on our honeymoon to Yosemite. But she did a lot of things she wanted to do in life. And uh, we have to make sure that we are changing. We have to ask ourselves, what do I need to change in my life? And there are difficult projects, tasks, and challenges we need to accept and to change and to accomplish. But even for students years ago, I gave the what I call a five-minute rule. And I had to apply it to myself because... When you have a difficult chore, let's say for in an academic way, you have to do a term paper, and oh, the term paper is 12 pages long, and uh, it's just such a big, huge mountain of uh, obstacles, you don't even start on it. How do you start on it? A five-minute rule. I give myself just five minutes. I'm going to take five minutes to write down ideas, research sources, and whatever, and you break that barrier just by taking breaking a big task into smaller steps, one by one. So there may be changes you need to make in your life, as we heard in the sermonette. There may be people that you have antagonisms toward, and you need to work those out and realize, I need to change my attitude. There are difficult weaknesses in my character that I need to overcome and replace. So we have to set those goals and be living sacrifices and When we took the Passover, we committed our lives to God and Christ. We said, we are willing to live, be living sacrifices, and we also committed ourselves to be willing to die for this way of life. And when we take the Passover this year, we can remember those commitments that we made. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Because you know that you don't belong to yourself. First Corinthians, the sixth chapter, you are owned, bought, and paid for by the blood of Christ. First Corinthians 6 and verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know? that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, should read, which you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So you are bought with a price. You are a bond servant. You belong to Christ. But are you willing to even die for this way of life? The Apostle Paul was willing to. We might turn to Acts, the 20th chapter. Acts 20, it was prophesied uh, to him that he was going to be arrested and uh, taken captive in Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 22. Acts 20, and starting with verse 22. He's... Uh, talking to the Ephesian elders. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Now notice his attitude. 
nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Indeed, and indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you that this day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so we want to do that. But he didn't count his life dear in the service of God. Notice chapter 21 here in uh, verse, well, verse 9 and verse 10, uh, the prophet Agabus uh, told Paul, took a belt from him, verse 11, and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Acts 21, verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? <laughs> he's, he's told he's going to be bound in Jerusalem. They're pleading with him. And he said, What are you doing? What are you crying for? What are you trying to do here? For I am ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when then when he would not be persuaded, we ceased and say, The will of the Lord be done. But while we are alive, we need to redeem the time, but we need to also realize that we have surrendered our life to God and to Christ, that we're bought with a price, we're bought with God's blood. And we put our emphasis on life while we have life. Because we have to be transformed into the very image of Christ, Romans 8.29, which means his nature, his character, the divine nature of God. I want to take a look at a couple of scriptures that emphasize the matter of life here. Let's take a look at uh, 1 John 2. As we enjoy the life that we have, we struggle to overcome self, Satan, and society, but we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. First John 2 and verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So what are we doing with our lives? Abide in him that when he appears, yes, at the second coming, at the resurrection, at the last trumpet, when he appears, we may have confidence some of us may not have confidence right now because we realize we feel guilty over some things and we have some weaknesses to overcome. We realize, look, you surrender your life to God and help tell Him, as David did in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. It's the process that you know that God is creating in you His perfect character with your wholehearted, willing cooperation. Then you have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know what that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteous is begotten. It should read, begotten of Him. I'll also look at a scripture here in 1 John 5, verse 11. 
1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. We are not immortal yet. This mortal must put on immortality. But as long as we have the Son, that is Jesus Christ, He says we have that down payment. We have the earnest of the Spirit. He that has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So God has given us this precious gift of dynamism, of the life in the Spirit, of Christ living His life in us. I already read Colossians 3, but let's uh, read that again, or I referred to it. Let's turn to Colossians, the third chapter. We look forward to the return of Christ because that's when the resurrection takes place, the first general resurrection. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. If I have time, I'll talk about a little bit about the resurrection and Easter. Of course, Easter supposedly celebrates uh, Christ's resurrection. Well, it does not. Uh, we'll see later. But how do we as God's church, since we don't celebrate a pagan sunrise service, which is actually in a sense supporting the sun god, do we in any way acknowledge the resurrection of Christ? Well, yes, we do. How? Because we recognize the only sign Jesus gave that he is the Messiah. Matthew 12:40 that he would be in the tomb that is in the heart of the earth 3 days and 3 nights, exactly 72 hours. And by the way, uh that's in the booklet. Uh, Mr. McNair mentioned this a new booklet, Easter, The Untold Story, is actually going to be mailed to all co-workers and donors, uh, co-workers and members starting Monday. So you should be receiving this sometime soon, and you'll real realize that. So the world, of course, denies that. But we recognize the, rec- the resurrection of Christ because we know and believe and prove in the sign that he gave that he was in the tomb three days and three nights. And there are other ways of well as well that we recognize the resurrection of Christ. How? By coming up out of the water in baptism. We may read that later in Romans, the sixth chapter. But that's what he's saying here. If you be risen with Christ, how are you risen with Christ? The old man died at baptism. And you came up out of the water to be risen with Christ. Well, let's continue here with uh, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yes, the old man died. And you are a new man. Of course, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 talk about the old man and the new man. And uh, when Christ, who is our life, there's a... I hope you always think about that. Every day you're alive. You thank God for a new day of living. You think of Christ who is our life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And that's 
message which goes along with the days of unleavened bread. So death is an enemy, but God is giving a life, us a lifetime of learning godly love and time to be conformed to the very image of Christ. He wants us to complete the Great Commission. And as long as we're alive, we seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and we're living sacrifices, as we read in Romans 1, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So how important is the resurrection of Christ? Let's turn to Romans, uh, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. We had inspiring uh, sermons the last two weeks. We realized that Christ's sacrifice paid for our sins and that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we'll be remembering that. Once a year, the memorial of Christ's death. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. And you hear of heroic acts by fathers trying to save their drowning children in the sea or many other acts of heroism, and they give their lives to save their children. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, verse 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we were justified by his blood. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, we were justified, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So how important is it that we are saved by his life? How important is the resurrection? Might turn to Romans. Well, while we're here, Romans, uh, the third chapter, Romans 3. Again, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, and the sins that are past are forgiven. Romans 3. And verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over, we heard last week, has passed over, the sins that what were previously committed, or as, it, as in the King James Version, remission of sins that are past. So we have been reconciled for the sins that are past. And even now, I won't turn there, First John 1, uh, verse 7, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is present. That's ongoing. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's 1 John 1 and verse 7. But what if Christ were not risen from 
the grave and he shed his blood. What would be our state then? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 again. If you have that marked, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some in the Corinthian church had uh, the heresy, the false doctrine, that there is no resurrection, just like the Sadducees. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, And if Christ is not risen... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ is vital. We just read in Romans 5.10 that we shall be saved by his life. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So Christ is raised from the dead, and we've had the testimony of that resurrection as well. We have hope in the resurrection. (coughs) So how strong is your desire to be in the first resurrection? How strong is your faith in the resurrection? You already saw that the Apostle Paul was one who really preached the resurrection, believed in the resurrection, and put his whole heart in the resurrection. Turn back to Acts 23, you know, the time when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. And, of course, the the two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees uh, believe in in spirit and the resurrection. The Sadducees uh, believed in neither of those two. But Acts 23 and verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he made that whole issue of his life of being being examined by the Sanhedrin, made the resurrection the major issue of his life. And then, of course, the Sadducees and the Pharisees got into uh, a little dissension, it took place. They said, we've, the Pharisees said in the middle of verse 9, we find no evil in this man, uh, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, uh, let us not fight against God. So the Apostle Paul made that the major issue. He said, uh, we might turn to Philippians 3 and verse 10. Philippians 3 and verse 10. This is a part of the Apostle Paul's very character his values, his spiritual uh, teaching and doctrine. Philippians 3. And starting with uh, verse 8, he thought the past he counted were less than nothing. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, That I may know him. And all of us, brethren, must know the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. We surrendered to him, and we know that he is our kurios in the Greek. He is our Lord, our owner, our master, our boss, our savior. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So we realize that that is our goal to be in the resurrection. And when does that take place? It takes place, of course, at the last trumpet. And there are three general resurrections. I'll just mention them quickly. One, of course, the first general resurrection is at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 50 again. When is that? Uh, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It says, if those who believe that the kingdom of God is here that the kingdom of God is the church, that the kingdom of God is among you, uh, that's false teaching because Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound in the dead in Christ and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So when is the first general resurrection? At the last trumpet. And that's the resurrection. It's called the better resurrection. Why? Because it's a resurrection to eternal life. And then there's the second general resurrection, which you all know about because we preach it on the uh, last great day at the Feast of Tabernacles, but just take a quick look there in Revelation the 20th chapter, the second general resurrection. He says, The rest of the dead live not till the thousand years were finished. <clears throat> there in Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection referring to the saints who will rule with Christ a thousand years. And then he tells about the great white throne judgment in verse 11, verse 12, and billions of people will be resurrected at that time. And just with the, what did I say, 55,000 people dying every day, think of billions and billions of people uh, coming up in the white throne judgment. What an incredible time that will be. But God will prepare for that second general resurrection in the white throne judgment for a thousand years preceding that white throne judgment, uh, white throne judgment. It's the, uh, if I can find the one article I'm looking for here and, uh, come across it. We know that at the end of that thousand years will be the general judgment, or we call it the second uh, general resurrection. Find the one. 
Dr. Meredith uh, quotes, again, this is in the, uh, the answer, Dr. Meredith's article, the current Tomorrow's World magazine, that mentions the second general resurrection. He quotes from uh, uh, Gibbon's book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Quote, the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium was intimately connected with the second coming of Christ. As the works of the creation had been finished in six days, their duration in their present state, according to the tradition, was attributed to the prophet Elijah, was fixed to 6,000 years. By the same analogy, it was inferred that this long period of labor and contention, which was now almost elapsed, would be succeeded by a joyful Sabbath of a thousand years, and that Christ, with the triumphant band of the saints and the elect who had escaped death, who had been miraculously revived, would reign upon earth till the time appointed for the last and general judgment. So even Gibbon is giving a historic documentation that the early church believed in the millennium and believed in the general judgment, which is the second general resurrection, at the end of the millennium. And then, of course, you know the third general resurrection is the the lake of fire there in Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there are the three general resurrections, and you want the better resurrection, of course, which is the first resurrection. I could mention, I'll just mention in passing, that uh, who is going to be in the white throne judgment? I'll just give you these references uh, for sake of time. In uh, Matthew 11 and uh, verse 20, uh, Jesus said, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin! It'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be brought down to Hades. But I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So who's going to have an opportunity for salvation in the white throne judgment? The land of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. And he also mentions in Matthew 12, uh, verse 38, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will be in that white throne judgment. So we look forward to that time. We look forward, of course, to the reality of the resurrection and That one wonderful, I say wonderful story, the wonderful reality and documentation of the resurrection of Lazarus is such an inspiring, I say story, but an event to me. Let's turn there to John the 11th chapter, which gives the story of Lazarus' resurrection. You know, the second resurrection of the white throne judgment is symbolized by Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, the resurrection of the dry bones. But here was a physical resurrection of Lazarus, John, the 11th chapter. And, of course, Mary and Martha were very upset that their brother had died. 
And so he comes, uh, purposely comes late. And they said, you know, Lord, if you were here, you could have saved him. And Jesus said in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha says, verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know the true Jesus Christ of the Bible? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives, once you've uh, been uh, immortalized, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? And so again, uh, he... uh, tells them to take away the stone, verse 39. And Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been there dead four days. Verse 40, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus comes forth, loosen and let him go. And of course the Pharisees and uh, wanted to actually kill him. Uh, because many people were turning to Jesus and turning away from their religion. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so here Jesus went to the uh, house at Bethany, chapter 12, and here comes this woman who um, wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Very touching story. And he says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So Lazarus was dead. Did he go to heaven? No. Uh, If he was in the glories of heaven, Jesus would have to bring him back from this immortalized, glorified body into a mundane physical body. And... uh, Jesus said he's sleeping. And the disciples said, oh, well, if he sleeps, Lord, he'll get better. And Jesus said, Lazarus sleeps. Lazarus is dead. So Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead to physical life to live out the rest of his life. He he was asleep. He did not know anything. Turn to Mark, the 12th chapter, and one more story here on uh, the matter of the Sadducees and the resurrection. Mark 12. The Sadducees thought they would trick Jesus when they talked about the woman who had seven husbands and whose uh, husband will... Uh, she have in the in the resurrection, and uh, Jesus in verse twenty four says, "You are not there. You are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying?" I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know, that's not said about any other 
one in the Bible, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, those three are going to have a very powerful and intimate responsibility in the kingdom and government of God. But notice the lesson Jesus gives in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, therefore, are greatly mistaken. Now, they were dead. And my wife and I have had the privilege of visiting the mausoleum there in Hebron, where Abraham and Sarah are buried, and uh, Isaac and uh, Rebekah, and uh, Jacob and Leah. Rachel is not buried there. She's along the road between Bethlehem and uh, and Jerusalem. But I was very moving for my wife and me to be there right where those patriarchs are buried. But God says, I'm not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. Why did he say that? Because it's just as good as done. The next second or split second of their consciousness, it's like time is that will never have passed in their lives. Because when you're dead, you don't experience the passing of time at all. They are asleep. And every time I drive over here, over here on, on Sharon Amity, past that cemetery, and see all the flowers and all the gravestones and tombs, just realize those people are at peace. They aren't experiencing pain. They aren't experiencing suffering. They're just awaiting a great resurrection. And we saw again that Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. And here we have this Easter Sunday, which is an incredible... I'd say you have to be naive, if not totally deceived to say that you're celebrating Easter, which is another name for Yistra or Ishtar, which was a pagan goddess of fertility. So why would you do that? I'm celebrating Easter. Yes, I'm celebrating a fertility goddess. I told the people there in the Tomorrow's World presentation in Atlanta, if any of you are celebrating that one, one would raise their hand. I said, you need to repent of celebrating Easter. But we celebrate, or we don't celebrate, but we recognize Christ's resurrection because he lives his life in us. Christ who is our life. And we live his life in him, we live our life in him, and he lives our life in us. So again, you might want to uh, make sure you get the booklet on the uh, uh, Easter, the untold story. I'll just give you one scripture that you might uh, connect with that. John 20, verse 1. You don't need to turn there. But on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So while Protestants and Catholics uh, celebrate a Sunday uh, sunrise resurrection uh, Jesus was gone when the tomb was still dark now we observe the days of unleavened bread and we realize Jesus Christ is the living bread from heaven he said John 6 verse 51 I am the living bread verse 35 I am the bread of life so when we eat of the unleavened bread during the days of unleavened bread 
we're again celebrating or recognizing the fact that Christ is the living bread. He is the resurrected Christ. And we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. I didn't turn there, but let's quickly turn there to Romans 6 chapter. I referred to that earlier about the resurrection of Christ and how we acknowledge that in our own lives. We do it because we recognize the very only sign he gave of the three days and three nights. We also recognize it in the, he's the living bread, but we also recognize it in baptism. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we read in Colossians, the third chapter, if you are raised with Christ, so seek those things that are above and not things that are behind. So we realize that Jesus Christ is the resurrection, that he is the resurrection and the life. And we need to remember who we are. Who are we? We've already saw the, seen that we are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ who are bought and paid for by his blood. We are also, well, I won't turn there, but just to mention a few of the descriptors of what God thinks of us, that we are the sons and daughters of, of the Almighty. That's in Second Corinthians 6, verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, said the Lord Almighty. Who are you? You're the sons and daughters of the Almighty. You're the begotten children of God. You also have the name of the New Jerusalem, as we found in the sermon there in Revelation 3, in Jerusalem and your future. We're also the saints of God. Remember the sermon, Who are the saints of God? And we are the bond servants of Christ. Let's turn to Luke, the 20th chapter. For another identifier of who you are, and when you think of your responsibilities daily, Jesus never forgot who he was. We should not ever forget our calling as sons and daughters, as disciples, students of Jesus Christ, as bond servants. Luke 20 and verse 34. Well, yes, Luke 20, verse 34. Remember, this is the situation of the Sadducees. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The King James has it, children of the resurrection. So, brethren, let's always remember who we are. We are children of the resurrection. God has an awesome plan of salvation. 
It says that he will transform our lowly body to be conformed to his glorious body. In Philippians 3 and verse 21. Let's turn finally to 1 Corinthians 15 again. 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But now that we have that victory, what must we do? Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So let's look forward to the Passover and remembering the great sacrifice that Christ gave and the Father gave for the whole world. Let's demonstrate our thanksgiving and appreciation by growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Let's rejoice in the truth of the resurrection. Let's look forward to seeing the saints, the brothers and sisters in Christ in the resurrection. Let's always remember that Christ is the resurrection and the life. He is our life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Let's look forward to the great banishment of that great enemy, death, and look forward to the time when there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor crying, as it says in Revelation 21, verse 4. And let's look forward to our victory over death.